Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hello, my lovely returning listeners. If you are a new listener, welcome. I have an incredibly informative, juicy episode for you today. I've been waiting months to interview today's guest. She is an expert in personality disorders, in mindfulness. She's also been recently awarded the most prestigious prize a psychology student can receive at Brock University, which is where she attends. In honor of her receiving this award, her university wrote an incredible article which details more about her background, so I thought I would start by reading that. People have always been comfortable opening up to Jennifer Roeders. From a young age, she became known for offering a listening ear and was the person friends and family would turn to when they needed support. When it came to choose a career, psychology seemed like a natural fit. Human beings are like a puzzle, says Roeders, who's now studying at the PhD level at Brock under the supervision of Professor Angela Book. Understanding human behavior is like putting the puzzle together one piece at a time. Roeders has been awarded one of the most prestigious prizes a psychology student can receive. The Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, Vanier Canada Graduate Scholarship. She was recognized for her research on childhood neglect and abuse and the effect they can have on attachment and personality outcomes. Winning this award literally means the world to me, Roeders said, adding that she believes she's going to help a lot of people by supporting her research. I'm going to try to make the world a better place for everyone. Roeders has an interesting road to the PhD program with two master's degrees and some full-time employment guiding her along the way. After I did my undergraduate degree in psychology, I thought I wanted to be a sports psychologist and went to a university in the United States for my first graduate degree, specializing in that field. There, she completed a placement with sex offenders with intellectual disabilities who were attending court-mandated therapy. Roeders became interested in working with this population and learning how the interventions she could provide could help crimes like these from happening in the future. When she graduated from the program, she moved back home to Ontario, Canada, and began a job at Waypoint Center for Mental Health. Roeders worked in the Provincial Forensic Unit, where she provided forensic assessments and treatment for patients admitted from the courts, correctional facilities, and other psychiatric hospitals. I worked with many patients diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or who had higher psychopathic traits, she said. One of the only evidence-based treatments for individuals with BPD is called dialectical behavioral therapy, which uses strategies like mindfulness to help people become better aware of their emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. She noticed a lot of overlap in the personality traits of the individuals diagnosed with BPD and those with higher psychopathic traits, but knew there was not much research available on the overlap. I wondered if mindfulness interventions could also help people with psychopathic traits, she said. At that point, I knew I wanted to explore a PhD in that field. Now, because I make this podcast for all of you, 
I have Google alerts set up on my Gmail. So every time borderline personality disorder is mentioned on a, in a new article, I get an email about it. Now, I got an email about this article that I just read to you a couple of months ago announcing Jen's Vanier Scholarship Award. And I saw all this incredible work that she's done on personality disorders, her expertise in DBT and mindfulness. And immediately I knew that I wanted to have her on as a guest. I couldn't find an email for her. So I went on to LinkedIn. I found her on LinkedIn and sent her a message asking her if she would like to be a guest. And because of her extremely busy academic schedule, it took us a couple of months to get this in the calendar, but we did it. So I cannot wait to play this interview with Jen for you. She was so incredibly warm, so incredibly informed about what we go through as people with BPD. One last warning before I dive into my interview with Jen. There are some audio quality issues until about minute 40. There was some background noise in my apartment that I noticed in my post-editing phase and I was so disappointed because I love to bring you guys the best audio quality possible, but this conversation was really meaningful and contains so much incredible insight that I trusted that you, the listeners, would push through those audio quality issues so that you can absorb all of this good information. So without further ado, let's jump into my interview with Jen Roters. You have entered Back from the Borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am going to introduce you to our guest today, Jennifer Roters. So without further ado, Jen, would you like to give the audience an introduction and tell them a little bit about yourself? I'm happy to do so. Uh, so my name is Jen. Um, I am a doctoral candidate in psychology at Brock University. I specifically study uh, childhood adversity as it relates to attachment and personality outcome. 
I also have a second interest in uh, sex offenders. Um, and I have been working at this for the better part of 10 years. It is a passion of mine just to help people and uh, try to study things that is going to be useful uh, for people in the future. That's amazing. And where, where exactly are you based, Jen? So uh, Brock University uh, is in St. Catharines, Ontario in Canada. Um, so currently I am finishing up my dissertation. So I don't necessarily have to be in St. Catharines, but I'm in the Southern Ontario area, very close today. Got it. What made you want to explore a career in psychology? So uh, that is uh, a burning question that everybody wants to ask. Uh, And I feel like it's always just kind of been inside me. People have always wanted to be open with me and share. And I've always felt compelled to help people. Um, And I really always kind of want to do a good job. I'm a little bit compulsive that way. I want to see what's going to work the best and uh, do anything to help. So that's what kind of made me jump to school to do that. Uh, they always say, try and do what you love and you won't work a day in your life. Uh, so I kind of tried to uh, go towards that avenue and it hasn't disappointed me. I've met a lot of amazing people and learned a lot of amazing things and hope in the future that I can help a lot more people with the work that I do. Incredible. And what exactly initially interested you about personality disorders specifically? I remember sitting, uh, I did my master's degree at LaSalle University in Philadelphia, actually. And I remembered us doing um, uh, projects on uh, something called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, where it goes through every single uh, diagnosis that a person can have. And we got to personality disorders and I was like, whoa, that sounds pretty rough on people and um, really interesting at the same time. Uh, as I started to kind of learn a little bit more uh, in school, I learned that there was some hope in dialectical behavioral therapy. So I really jumped into that. I started to learn about uh, the modality of like mindfulness and it really piqued my interest. It's something that literally every single human being could do and it would probably help me. So that's where it started. Uh, And then I started working at um, community mental health. I saw that there wasn't as much help and support, even though there was um, dialectical behavioral therapy to help people. Not a lot of people uh, are trained in this or knowledgeable about it. So since there's this massive gap in the system, I really just jumped in there Um, and then when I started working in uh, the provincial forensic unit up in Penetang, Wishing, Ontario, uh, there was a lot of uh, males uh, that were diagnosed with borderline and still huge gap in the system. So that's what made me want to go back to school and really try and like, not necessarily prove, but provide more evidence that if you do this work, it will help. Uh, I have so many que- like questions coming off of everything that you just said. So the Please. first one, the first one that comes up when you talk about this is, 
I have read so much and I'm also fascinated with the prison system and um, I watched a documentary and I wish I could remember, I'll link to it in the show notes, but there is a documentary about a man who implemented mindfulness programs in prisons. And I'm not sure, I'm sure you've seen that um, and just how much of a metamorphosis it was for so many of the prisoners there. And so that's coming to mind. And then another thing that's coming to mind is the amount of men who have BPD, who are misdiagnosed from my perspective, mainly because they express their BPD in a violent maybe way that is seen as something other than what it is, right? It's And they're demonized so quickly and almost just thrown and locked away rather than figuring out most of the time these people were victimized themselves. And unless we stop that cycle, they will continue having kids. Those kids will be traumatized and have personality disorders. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear more about your perspective on why so many men with BPD fall through the cracks are not accurately diagnosed. I think that um, just to broaden that, I've seen so many men and women misdiagnosed. I think it really depends on where you're seeing the individual in the prison system uh, specifically. I worked in the mental health uh, aspect of it. Um, in the mental health field, if you see somebody that's diagnosed with a personality disorder, it's almost like, well, we're just going to house them at this point in time as opposed to provide treatment. And that really, really irked me because there are things that you can do. Um, I also study psychopathy. Uh, Psychopathy isn't a diagnosis, but it is uh, closely related to antisocial personality disorder. And I think a lot of men get, I mean, disproportionately uh, diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder as opposed to borderline. And as it stands right now. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's probably because of the violence and the aggression that you see uh, with men more so uh, as opposed Mm -hmm. to women. uh, And that tends to be more relational aggression, which you can't perceive as readily, whereas with physical aggression, you can definitely see the behavioral effects. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And women, I mean, actually, again, maybe this is stereotypical, but, you know, sometimes women present these histrionic, you know, um, promiscuous attention seeking. And I feel like that is what the picture of a borderline is. Right. And it's like, I just, as I have grown my following on Instagram, we've got 5,000 people following the account. And I go in and look sometimes just at our followers Mm -hmm. because as like a scientist minded person, I'm like, I look, wow, this, this disorder expresses itself on a spectrum. Everyone experiences it in such a different way. There are quiet borderlines, right? The people that act completely inward. There's the more histrionic in my opinion, which I have been in my life. Absolutely. I think when I was an adolescent, it was very uh, sexually acting out. As they say, again, I, I actually really hate a lot of these terms like promiscuous and sexually acting out. And 
I would imagine it's difficult to study a personality disorder like BPD in a way that's like scientisty <laughs> because it's just all over the place. It's like how do you begin to study something that expresses itself on such a spectrum? I honestly think it's – and this might sound bad but like cool because like people are so different and yeah. that's part of the – I guess – uh, what keeps me going because you see such like different pieces of um, the borderline personality disorder um, uh, symptoms come out and that can provide actually a lot of hope uh, yeah. because like with even um, some like of the negative uh, things like, um, you know, you know, increased sexual activity or something like that, it could actually help. Maybe that's just somebody looking to form attachments and, mm -hmm. you know, this emptiness they're trying to cope and as long as they're doing it in a safe uh way that isn't victimizing other people it, it's kind of working with that person um so as opposed to seeing it as more of a negative side i think it's um you know it's just like a spice of life there's like just so many different pieces that you can use because part of psychology is being creative and working with um, the individual that wants to get help like if they do want to get help to figure out what kind of treatment plan and, and, and what they want it to look like because uh, with dialectical behavioral therapy you're trying to build a life that's worth living and I know with uh, individuals with um, BPD specifically there's um, a lot of hopelessness and helplessness and and that's the most heartbreaking part of it all because there is hope there are people that do want to help and there's also people that you know don't necessarily want help or while you're in a more uh, acting out phase you could potentially hurt somebody and then isolate yourself so uh that part i think is the most difficult part for me because it's just so heartbreaking yes i can imagine it's really it's a struggle as a professional to help people. I mean, I've, I uh, did part of my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And I have to admit, I like tapped out because like, I was just, it, I realized it wasn't the path for me. This path that I'm on um, is working for me now. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back. Um, but something that I'm finding is getting DMs, you know, just desperate DMs from people saying, can you give me advice? And, and I, I'm sensing this just overarching feeling. And I, and it's remind, reminding me of myself where I wanted anyone else to tell me what to do. I wanted someone to tell me how to fix myself. I wanted someone to tell me how I could remove like this BPD. I wanted someone to tell me what to do with my boyfriend and my partner what is your advice for um, people who are resonating with what I'm saying? If they're finding themselves like really feeling helpless in their own life, um, what are some things they can do to, to kind of take back the, the ownership of their decisions? One of the biggest things that I, I've done for myself whenever I want to change stuff or people that come to me and they say that they want help is I always say like take your bathroom mirror and decorate it with like quotes and inspirations and things like that or at least somewhere that you look every single day whether it's like the wall beside your bed 
if that's the only place that you can be, like some people can't even get out of bed. Wherever you look every single day, have something that resonates with you, whether it's like a, a, a literary quote, um, a scientific quote, something that is going to give you hope, something that's going to inspire. Because a lot of the time, um, individuals with BPD is, and, and when you said that you were just like looking for somebody to tell you what to do, it's that you don't necessarily have the skills to be able to get through that moment. And when you're in the midst of a crisis, learning a new skill is just so hard. It's like you're trying to concentrate on something um, as your car's on fire or something like that. It's like, oh, if I just read this about, you know, interpersonal effectiveness, I'll be great. <laughs> but I'm in this burning house. <laughs> so it's like, yes. So um, I think uh, having those quotes available are good and and that's if you're like super low level if you do have like more uh, I guess motivation more energy to do stuff learn those skills I know finding uh, a dbt uh, a full dbt uh, complement is kind of hard it might be more accessible in the United States than it is in Canada I'm I don't know I'm out of the U.S. Uh, treatment game mm-hmm. <laughs> in a while but um if you have access to that, work it. I mean, it's going to yeah. be a hard road. Everything's a hard uphill battle and it's worth it. There's light on the other side. Um, I always liken it to you're on uh, this stranded island. And if you don't try and swim, bad things are going to happen. But if you're in the middle of the ocean and you're at, at least kind of going towards something, take your time. Make it like just one Yes. Paddle at a time. That's really, really profound. I like that a lot. Well, my next question for you is, so you recently were awarded this extremely prestigious (laughs) prize. It's the article that I read and I'll link to it in the show notes. It says, Jen was recently awarded one of the most prestigious prizes a psychology student can receive, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Vanier, I hope I'm doing this right, Canada Graduate Scholarship. And this was for your research on childhood neglect and abuse and the effect that they can have on attachment and personality outcomes. First, congratulations. Secondly, that is a mouthful. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I want to ask you, you know, what interested you particularly in attachment theory. And I haven't dug into attachment theory on the podcast yet, but um, I'm familiar with it myself. But for my listeners who aren't familiar with the idea of attachment, how could you describe that to a a beginner ear? Totally. So so I'll answer the first part and then I will kind of explain what it is. So where I learned and started uh, becoming aware of attachment uh, actually was when I was in school at LaSalle in Philadelphia. Uh, We were doing a developmental course and uh, it just kind of came up there. Where I really started to get into it was when I was working in um, the uh, forensic mental health unit. Uh, One of my mentors, uh, Dr. Uh, Liam Marshall, he does more of the sex offender uh, work. He was really interested in it. So what is attachment? Attachment is like this um, kind of like internal uh, model of uh, basically like a caregiver. 
So whether it's mom, dad, if you were raised by grandma, grandpa, adoptive parents, whoever you were raised by. And it's kind of like this model uh, that you adopt uh, from a very early age. If you think of attachment, think of uh, little baby ducks. Uh, so when they hatch, they start to follow uh, mummy around, uh, usually. And uh, you see like the little ducks in a row. That's kind of what attachment is. And, um, you know, depending on the nature and the quality of the relationship that you have with your caregiver, this can be secure. You know, you're happy, you see yourself in a good way, you see others in a good way. Um, you know, that's uh, one of the attachment styles. Now there's three insecure uh, attachment styles. And what specifically concerns uh, borderline personality disorder is anxious attachment, where you see this other as idealized. They're like beautiful, wonderful, like the best person ever. And then you devalue yourself. You see yourself as like bad, unworthy, all those kinds of things. And I really thought that that was super important to go into uh, with borderline personality disorder because it, it's a large source of stress and anxiety for individuals with psychopathy um, and antisocial. Well, actually, antisocial is different. That's part of my uh, research, quite surprisingly, um, which is probably why I won the Vanier Award. <laughs> um, God, and I mispronounced that so much. It was like the Vanier Award. Jesus. That's okay. That's okay. My partner is French, French and he would be like, <laughs> don't worry, judgment free zone. No, my partner's from Montreal. So, yeah, he's from Quebec. Ah. So, he would be like, you need to get your French pronunciation together. Oh, my goodness. That is so cool. Montreal's amazing, <laughs> by the way. I still need to um, go. But do it, I digress. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> same. I'm so like shiny object. Woo. Yes. Um, same. <laughs> Um, but yeah, going back to it, uh, psychopathy, these individuals see themselves as amazing and then everybody else as completely devalued. Mm -hmm. Whereas now the work that I'm starting to kind of look at, um, antisocial is a little bit different. Um, it doesn't have either one of those attachment styles. So one of my guesses, and this is what I'm hoping to test with um, my dissertation, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not fearful attachment comes into play. So what mm -hmm. fearful attachment is, is basically you take a look at yourself and you devalue yourself and you devalue others. So it's kind of almost like um, these four quadrants where like you either value yourself and others or don't value yourself and others or a mix and match of that. Wow, what a lonely and isolating existence to devalue yourself and other people as well. Yes, yes. So I I'm can't not, imagine. I'm not sure if that's what's happening right now, but if it is, it's something that I definitely want to delve into to see if I can do something. And like I said before, DBT offers so much help. And since these personality disorders overlap, there could be something to help within DBT for these other disorders. So I really Sorry. like, it's fascinating. I hope I didn't cut you off to, to nope. what you were trying to finish. I... I could just talk to you for hours because I this I find this stuff so fascinating and something that's coming up for me is so often now now that I'm posting a lot on my Instagram about um you know attachment and how BPD develops and getting into aces and all these things that we'll talk about later is so much I find 
people with uh, borderline personality disorder tend to stigmatize and demonize people with other personality disorders quite mm-hmm. often. And there's a lot of like, oh, I have BPD, but narcissists are worse. People with antisocial personality are worse, right? And I find and I was one of these people where I would be like saying that all my ex-partners were narcissists and being an armchair diagnosing these people. But quite often we share a lot of the same core wounds. It's just the fact that our genetics, right, make us, because of the, the individual that we are, the the particular type of caregiving environment we had and, this, and then maybe the stressful situations around us, we just so happen to develop that particular personality disorder, but with completely different situations, we could just as easily have a like antisocial personality disorder. And so I'm getting around to a question here. What, what similarities do you see across the spectrum in personality disorders? And why do you think that people with BPD are so quick to demonize other personality disorders, but then at the same time want to fight for destigmatization of their own personality uh, disorder. Well, that's a that's a complicated question. God, um, I know. Do your like obviously. <laughs> I know it's like these are just philosophical musings, right? Yeah. Like that I that I think of. Oh, that's a great question to uh, think about. Now. Wh- Every single person is different, first and foremost. But where you see a lot of the overlaps, uh, impulsivity is a big one. Um, Impaired empathy, either over-empathizing or not at all. Emotionality, either all the emotions or none of the emotions. Those are the ones, those are the specific three that I think of the most when I think of that. When I see individuals with uh, personality disorders kind of, you know, say like, I'm fine. Those other people, you know, don't want to associate with. It could be underlying self-esteem too, because I know a lot of individuals with BPD, as you know, the attachment literature says, if they're devaluing themselves, this could be a reaction. This could be, you know, them trying to self-soothe and say, you know, like, I, I didn't deserve being victimized by this other individual, but deep down, it. it they might be blaming themselves or something like that. Sure. So that's what kind of comes to mind there. Um, when I see individuals with like varying like personality disorders, I do see that, um, you know, even though there are overlaps, it's about being able to kind of cope with the internal struggles that you have while at the same time, um, not victimizing other people on the outside. Because when we are in the midst of struggling, and this happens even with individuals that are not diagnosed with a personality disorder. Um, you know, if something bad happens, you feel isolated. You're, you're kind of like a, a, a bear with a thorn in their paw. You know, you're like snappy. You are isolated. You tend to isolate yourself more. And that kind of exasperates uh, the problems that you have. And then people don't want to be around you because you, that's me. That was me. Absolutely. Where when my BPD was at its worst, if I look back now, objectively, I can say, you know, I probably wouldn't want to be around me in those times. I was really reactive, but then immediately after I would have one of these reactive behaviors and I would watch people's eyes kind of like change, you know, like especially someone you love, like if you snap at them and you kind of watch them go, ooh, 
Like I am now going to not want to share with you because of your reactions. And that's when the BPD shame monster kicks in where it's like, see, I always do this. No one wants to be around me. And then those feelings start to manifest in just more behavior that makes you not, that people not want to be around you. And it is the most painful, like self-fulfilling cycle. And, and I think that the main thing that people with BPD struggle with at least the ones, and I'm only speaking from just my experience and speaking with other people, Mm -hmm. no type of obviously clinical experience here, but they, when they're aware, like when it's like everyone has that light bulb moment. And I'm sure you've seen this in therapy and working with people where they're like, oh shit, I'm the problem. That's what I realized. I like to say in the podcast where there's two I'm the problem moments. You have an I'm the problem and then it's followed by a lot of grief, a lot of sadness. Like I'm not going to get all these years of my life back. Where would my life be if I wouldn't have done this? But then I like to think of the second, which is important, I think. I think you have to go Mm -hmm. through that. And then the second one is this light bulb moment where like I'm the problem. And if I'm not the – or I I have control now to Mm -hmm. change these behaviors and change my outcomes. But I, when people ask me, how did you have that aha moment? And I might be honest with you, I had that aha moment before therapy. It just came to me naturally. And I'm wondering, how can we get people to their aha moment faster? Does it just happen naturally? Is it an age thing? Because now I'm 32, right? And like everyone says, not everyone, but I've, I often find that the literature states that BPD can tend to calm down with age, even without treatment sometimes. So I've yammered on and on. What's your reaction to that yammering? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the simple answer, which isn't so simple, is mindfulness. Um, We're not really taught to be very mindful in North American society. Um, Western culture is very much so, you know, consumer driven, um, coping through avoidance and those things don't lend themselves to mindfulness. Um, so we are emotional health period, right? (laughs) No, no, no. Emotion regulation, distress tolerance, none of those things. And with technology, interpersonal effectiveness is, um, probably like different. It looks different than, you know, back in the day when we had to be hunter-gatherer and you'd have to work as a team, right? And create those attachments, right? Um, So the simple answer is mindfulness, but mindfulness isn't like this, like sitting down on a pillow uh, saying, oh, it's just being present and non-judgmental in that moment. I I want to ask you, I'm so excited now. (laughs) Now is the mindfulness piece because I want to talk about that and I'd like to offer a mini vignette because you may find it interesting specifically because of your interest in mindfulness. Two years ago is when I discovered my observer self for the first time and it was it was when I had my aha moment with BPD where I was on, you know, six different psychiatric medications. I had been diagnosed with bipolar, ADHD, CTP, PTSD, depression, anxiety, maybe it's borderline, you know, like something was wrong with me. 
And I remember just quote unquote, I now know that that is not the case, but I was trying to figure out why I felt so just, even though everything was fine in my life, all my basic needs were met, but I just felt so profoundly empty, so reactive, so scared. Everyone else though saw me as a very capable person and that almost made it worse because no one could quite understand how much I was suffering inside. And thankfully I have a partner now who I sent the Azaz from Montreal he grew up in a household where his they had monks, Tibetan monks, staying at their house in Montreal. And um, his grandfather was um, involved in Habitat for Humanity in India. And so he had the unique experience of being exposed to uh, Eastern spirituality from a very young age. And he, I say he's the stupidest spiritual person I know because he still lets his like negative thoughts get to him. But he he's always been kind of aware – of and was raised with this understanding that there's like your thoughts and then there's you, right? Like he's understood that. And I say this to say where I was laying in our in, in bed in our 500 square foot North Hollywood apartment, weaning off psychiatric medications, just in actual hell. And I was laying there. And for some reason, I yelled across the room at Zaz and I said, Zaz, when you talk or when you think do you hear your thoughts? And then there's another part of you. Like I actually just was trying to unravel this head fuck of like, wait, are my thoughts me? Is this me? And that, that is when my spiritual journey began where he said, yeah, yeah, of course, Molly. Like, yes, there's your thoughts. You're not your thoughts. And I just went, wait, but then, then who am I? Who am I if I'm not these thoughts? And I, that's like deep shit, right? But that is what we can actually get to 29 years of life and never think that. That's why we're sad. That's why we don't feel okay. That's why we're trying to drink and do everything because I was trying to fill a hole. Whereas if I was raised with this understanding, I would have that inner stillness. And now that I am – and then, of course, I started – all I would hear is, you should do mindfulness, download the call map. And then you sit there and you're just going, this is horrible. Now I'm just hearing all these horrible thoughts. I can't do this. And then for someone with BPD, it's just reaffirming like, wow, this thing that's supposed to be peaceful for everyone else, which I think is bullshit by Instagram. People are like, wow, join the calm app. I'm so calm now after this. And it's like when in reality, we're not sharing how it actually feels to try meditation, which is actually really scary and well, can be scary for someone mm -hmm. who is having the realization I did. And I feel like so many people with personality disorders, they think their thoughts are them and everyone mm -hmm. has dark thoughts. So if you have a dark thought and you say, that's me, of course, you're going to think you're a fucked up bad person, right? But I can admit mm -hmm. I've fantasized about beating my ex with a beer bottle in his head, but I don't do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but we don't talk about these things. So then we see serial killers or something come out and they're like, wow, I could never be that. That could never be me. When it's like, I feel like all of us is just one fucking psychological break away from that being our reality. So um, again, curious to your reaction on that is why do you – do you think that 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 lack of separation between our observer self and our thoughts is kind of what causes a lot of our suffering. Yeah. So again, 
lot to untangle. Um, yeah, God, I'm bad. giving you, I'm throwing <laughs> you a lot okay. of these. <laughs> That's okay. I appreciate it. It's uh, very interesting. So I think all humans, firstly, um, we all kind of struggle with this. I mean, to varying degrees, um, because we don't really know how much about existence. Life and death are kind of like these weird concepts, like, how did I get here? What's my purpose? These sorts of things. And for the individual with uh, borderline personality disorder, um, if you think about, you know, childhood and, and, and things like that, um, the main thing is uh, invalidation. Um, so your experiences are invalidated. So you learn to not trust your inner thoughts. Um, so then you kind of end up either demonizing those inner thoughts or, ignore, or trying to ignore them or trying to avoid them uh, by any means possible. A lot of individuals use substances. A lot of people use sex because sex creates that you know, oxytocin high for a while. That was me. That was me. I call it sex as self-harm. That's kind of how I use the phrase because I don't like promiscuity, but I used sex absolutely as a form of negative coping, self-harm behaviors, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you are not alone. There's so many individuals out there that do that uh, with the diagnosis and without the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, or using sex as a weapon, things like that. So it has to do with human nature and also just that invalidation. Um, the seeing yourself um, as not your thoughts, uh, that is definitely a very like Eastern, non-Western idea. And it's a hard one to disentangle because it is like very much so abstract thoughts. And it's not comfortable to sit with that at all. Part of it is sitting with and just tolerating that uncomfortable thought, like a surfer riding a wave, uh, because emotions will eventually dissipate. Um, the research that you were um, uh, talking about before that uh, personality uh, tends to change with age. Uh, in the program that I'm in, uh, they still see that uh, personality is very stable, but um, in the clinical aspect that I came from, they see it as changing. So uh, you become a little bit more emotionally stable um, with age. And this is uh, Salikin's work, I think in 20, I think it's 2002, actually, if anybody's interested. Mm. I'm just, I'm just nerding out right now. No, no, this, um, is, <laughs> this is a nerding out podcast. So awesome. Great. Awesome. So uh, a he uh, was doing work and found that people become more emotionally stable and uh, warm. And what was, there was a, there was a third thing um, that uh, he had also found. But those two things are are, are really big in the um, cluster B personality disorders. So borderline antisocial, histrionic, and narcissism. Mm -hmm. So naturally it kind of helps uh, because if you think of yourself as a teenager, just a bunch of hormones running around, uh, you know, even like so-called, and I hate using this term normal. because normal doesn't. No, work. I know. I, I'm right there with you. My, I have a questions coming up for me because mm -hmm. I think a lot of my listeners could benefit from this and I'm curious on your perspective. So 
I have quite a few people that have written into me that are parents who suspect that their child is showing BPD traits. Mm-hmm. This is a multi-pronged question again. So like yeah. first and foremost, they're are conflicting opinions on whether or not you can diagnose an adolescent with BPD. Um, My personal stance is like, sure, if someone is displaying BPD traits, of course, there's like ways that you can begin to identify that and then put in things to help like with mindfulness, et cetera, right? You don't, I don't even have a formal BPD diagnosis because my doctor and is too scared to put it as my main diagnosis because otherwise I wouldn't get medical coverage (laughs) because that's how Mm -hmm. fucked up the stuff is, you know, we're living in this, this world. Exactly. So my question to you is a, what are your thoughts on, you know, BPD and adolescence? And then secondly, for me, one of the most invalidating experiences growing up, I have been classic BPD since I think I was about probably 13, 12, 13, if not earlier. I, raging BPD ticked off all the boxes. I have absolutely calmed down with age, but it was on fire. My mom would probably tell you like, it was like the worst times of her life when I was an adolescent. Um, but I was told things by my mom and like, your brain isn't developed yet. You know, your brain isn't fully developed yet. So like, you know what I mean? That kind of thing, which is factually true. But I will tell you what, sure as shit wasn't nice to hear when I was a teenager to know that like my brain isn't working properly and I had no one growing up talking about feelings because I grew up in an environment where it was a very unhealthy family system where everyone was trying to keep homeostasis with a very angry and abusive parent, a very uh, passive other parent who was enabling that family system. And so I was the scapegoat the broken child that was calling out like this is fucked up and shoplifting to try to like rattle the cage. You know what I mean? And I was demonized quite a bit as a child. And now I can look at this and be like, I was a kid, right? Like it was your job as parents to <laughs> like teach me these things and uh, and not shun me and tell me my brain wasn't fully developed. But I can also say after lots and lots of work on myself that I've tried to set aside that anger and resentment towards my parents and realize both of them came from their, well, my dad in particular came from a horrifically traumatic background where there was some abuse that I could barely even mention. And then my mother came from a background where when I talk about emotionally cold, it's like a frigid walk-in freezer at a restaurant. Like no Mm -hmm. one talks about their feelings. And the only time I saw emotions growing up is like extreme flashes of rage and then everyone shut up about it, right? Mm -hmm. And I would like to know from you, I know that so many of my listeners report similar uh, growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, How can parents – not to do that to their children. How can they, because well-meaning parents can really be doing things like that. Like my mom, she thought she was just telling me a fact. Your brain's not developed yet, Molly. (laughs) How can, is that invalidation? How can parents who suspect their children are on the BPD spectrum not try to fix their broken child and maybe identify flaws in the family system that they can correct to help support their child better? Well, 
that that one is a very sensitive topic because BPD does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, as you had pointed out before, uh, there are some, you know, biological, um, genetic stuff. So, you know, um, many individuals with borderline tend to perpetuate it through, you know, their kids as well. Um, so they might have borderline and then it goes down to their children. It might be, you know, better or worse, but it's a biopsychosocial model. And that's a mouthful. So it's biology. Mm-hmm. psychology and then your socialization so it sounds like your socialization just didn't fit with what your emotions and what you needed it was mm-hmm. a bad fit between caregiver and child and goodness of fit is a big one that Marshall Linehan talks about so if you suspect your child of having something like that um, you need support as well as a parent um, judgment free like we all have problems and having a child that is acting out is hard for you and for the child. Yes. So you have to help yourself. You can't help a person that's drowning if you yourself are drowning and they are like dragging you underneath. So you have to help yourself, get yourself into a healthy place. Um, You have to also not feel shame or guilt uh, for reaching out for help. Everybody needs help in this weird dystopian society that we happen to find ourselves in pandemic and locking ourselves away and all this type of stuff um you would go to the doctor the medical doctor if you uh, broke your arm or you had a cold or something like that um why are we not able to do that for our mental health so yes that stigma like separate yourself from that stigma first and foremost yes and then it's Connecting with the empathy uh, with your child because your child is acting out because they don't necessarily have the skills or the words to be able to tell you what's going on. And if they do, like, then you can try and validate them. Say, like, hey, I know this is really hard for you. Tell me more about that. Kind of more open-ended questions. Um, But that's also hard if you are a parent that also has That's what I mean, right? Like, this is why it's so important for parents. For example, my environment was we tried going to therapy one time and it was family therapy and I was plopped in a chair with my family there and they were pretty much like, this is what she's doing. Fix her. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) we have acting out child. Let's fucking tie this up so we can carry on with our life. And the family therapist started asking my dad questions, asking, you know, doing what a therapist would do, which is like, what's going on in this family system mm-hmm. so that I can find out <laughs> what's happening, right? This this child just didn't start acting out for no reason. I'm not saying my parents are completely to blame because of, like you said, there's yep. other factors at play, but let's just say that wasn't received well and we never went back to family therapy. Do you see that happen yeah, that's unfortunately happened. Um, being a therapist, uh, you never want to be in that situation because you're like, ooh, does not, like, fix my kid. Like, well, that's not how it works. Like, we're in a social society. We're all kind of part of the solution and part of the problem. Um, and quick fixes uh, rarely exist. Um, so, like, even if you're, you find a medication that works, 
it's not just the medication. It's something that you also have to do, whether it's like exercise helps people, um, learning those mindfulness skills, uh, other coping skills, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, I find that, you know, the anger that kind of comes up in those things is usually a secondary emotion to this underlying feeling of maybe it's sadness, maybe it's fear, Mm -hmm. something like that. And to get past the anger takes a lot of trust and work and a good therapeutic alliance or relationship. So mm-hmm. finding a therapist that, you know, um, fits with who you are, what you want, things like that. I always joke and say that a good therapist is like a good pair of pants. You might have to try on a few before you and find one that fit. Man, oh man, can I relate to that? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that come up there. You gave some incredible advice. It's difficult to find a therapist that works. And I can't stress enough what Jen is saying you don't have to go with the first therapist that you you uh you call and also you probably shouldn't you should you should have set up calls with it's like a job interview they're interviewing yeah. for for your job and it also it needs to be a mutually good fit my experience when i decided to finally try therapy again here in texas you know i reached out um, I did a lot of research about what DBT therapist I wanted to go with. And man, I found one. Her name's Penny Kruger. And she is really, really um, reputable. But I called her. She had a 40-minute call with me. Like, so nice. And then she said, oh, Molly, I don't have any spots available until July. I'm booked up. And what I and she thankfully referred me. She said, "Here's a list of six other people." So what did I do? I set up a call with like the four that I felt like resonation with, and then I had calls with all of them, and then I picked the one that I went with. And I don't think I think a lot of us kind of go in and think just because someone's a therapist, they're going to fix us, and it's going to be a right mm-hmm. fit. It's like there has to be such good. There has to be a good fit. You have to do your research about what therapy is best for you because someone's yep. modality could be totally wrong. It's not like you're just going to urgent care for a sore throat and you can go to any old urgent care, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, my question for you is what are some – tell me if you can answer this. What are some mm-hmm. red flags that people should maybe look out for when they are – looking for a therapist that to help them through BPD, what would be something that could come up on a call where you'd be like, "Mm, maybe not? Um, That one is a little bit more hard because you also have to know yourself really well. And usually if you are in the midst of kind of like a crisis like that, you might not be uh, in touch with you and your needs because like that's something that I see a lot with individuals with borderline they want something to be fixed but then they don't also know who what where when why any of that they're just like screaming for help um as you go through therapy like even with that therapist this is something that you could probably do I want you to process like if you're having any negative feelings towards them bring it up in therapy because that's super important um it might teach you something about yourself it might teach you about that person as well because how they answer the questions or how they deal with it if you notice your therapist getting like really defensive and stuff like that that might not work for you um it's kind of learning um 
about your attachment style also simultaneously at the same time because it's you and how you attach to another person. So mm-hmm. I'm hesitant to give like the ding, 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 red flag coming up. I uh, love that answer though. What are um, my question for you? As well, do you see DBT becoming more widely available? I'm also hearing it is difficult to find a DBT therapist that has availability. I also heard that it's pretty expensive for therapists to get certified in DBT. So therapists want to become certified. They like more people want to get involved in this. It seems like there's roadblocks on all over the place. And have you experienced that same thing? Yes, actually. Um, so I've done um, a lot of kind of like reading. So I've read all the Linehan books. I've done some of her uh, behavioral te- or behavior tech um, stuff. I haven't gone through all of her uh, trainings because they're not wildly, widely available. Like they, they rarely come to Canada. Um, there are some individuals that are offering those trainings, but as somebody that's still going through school, they aren't really accessible. Um, I understand why also, because as people might or might not know, uh, Marshall Linehan came out to say that she had borderline. So uh, she probably also wants to, you know, protect the individuals that are getting the therapy from these these other individuals. And the only way to do that is through this kind of like gatekeeping way. So interesting. Yeah, I can understand. your, Your thought is potentially like that, it's it's more of a selective process to make sure that the people that are getting into these programs are the right fit. Yes, because there's a, a large vulnerable, like as much as you may not want to believe yourself to be vulnerable, but if you're coming to somebody in a crisis and you know they aren't adequately trained, uh, you can do some real damage. And you want, like as a therapist, like that mortifies me. Um, Mm, mm. but some other therapists might not be cognizant of it as well, because they might be a different modality, like kind of like short, brief solution focus. And it might not be something on their radar. They might be not necessarily a psychologist. They could be from a different background as well. Mm. So I understand, um, why they want to be more selective or, uh, I guess, supervised monitor, kind of have a tighter control over it. Mm. Um, so having it be more widely available, I think it might be, um, just because it's been out for a while, uh, there's a huge call for it. Um, certain, um, businesses, uh, and corporations might be, uh, more mindful of it, uh, coming up as well. So they might want to actually pay for the training for some people. So I was lucky enough to have, um, Waypoint Center Mental Health uh pay for me to do the online stuff and they had paid for uh some individuals that were trained and do, to give talks and stuff like that so the people that were doing the therapy got it it's, it wasn't the same as the intensive uh uh learning module well in-person learning uh which eventually i i definitely want to do i've been eyeing it up it's like it's like my christmas wish list what do i, what do I want for christmas well, I just want some DBT training, please. Uh, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's expensive, but it's so worth it. A lot of the DBT therapists that I know um, are fantastic. They eat, sleep, breathe the dialect. 
um, yep. so the mindfulness, uh, the impermanence. That's my, my therapist, Bev. Like she is just, she worked in a psychiatric unit and ran massive DBT groups, right? She's also an ex-high school teacher. So it's like <laughs> this experience. Cool. She's a very take no shit type of person. And then also Love just it. nothing ruffles her feathers, which is so comforting in a therapist mm-hmm. where it's just like, I could say anything to her and there's no reaction. You know, it's just perfect acceptance and how can we get through this? And she has skills for me to do, which it's like that to have something and have someone understand the skills so deeply where it's like you say a situation and she can be like, you're judging yourself there. Let's do this skill. And I'm like, it is so calming to finally just be like, okay, here are tools I can use, you know, Dear man, these things come up in my mind um, when I am in a moment of crisis. And that's what people need is they need skills. They need things to work on. So that makes a whole lot of sense. When you are working with the sex offender population and obviously while keeping anonymity uh, in mind and everything, did you run across individuals with BPD that were um, sex offenders? And can you tell us like maybe about some just – high-level observations you made there and how sex abuse can sometimes interplay with BPD? Like, what can you tell us about that? Um, so I did. Um, all, like, you know, mental health doesn't exist in a vacuum. So, like, there's a combination of a, of a bunch of um, I, I saw, like, not a lot of skills to be able to deal with, you know, shame, guilt, rejection, attachment, um, all those sorts of things in sex offender treatment, we, we specifically, uh, go into, cause like, that's kind of like my area right now with Dr. Marshall, uh, is the treatment of that because like, you know, these things happen, you assess them through the, you know, the phallometric process, you know, frightening sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and, and is used to stigmatize as well. And it's learning the skills. So again, you know, uh, learning attachment. And like you said, a lot of individuals have been offended against themselves. They didn't necessarily learn the skills. They've been isolated. Uh, so a lot of it just boils down to those things and mindfulness over yourself and things like that. So that's where I see the biggest um, overlaps with those types of things. You, you said um, something that made me think of another question you keep saying shame. Shame comes up mm-hmm. a lot. And I'm currently reading um, an older book. It's like Healing the Shame That Binds You. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's, it is an older book and written by a veteran of the AA, like 12 steps kind of mm-hmm. situation, right? And he has a very spiritual approach to his the way he uh, visualizes shame. And quite frankly, I think it's hard to become whole if you mm-hmm. don't in some way really absorb and live the fact that you are just a small piece of a really big universe and that all of us are and our all of us are connected in some way a lot of what goes into personality disorders and I know this to be true for myself is the idea of shame toxic shame you know neurotic shame cuz what I'm here at learning in this book now is there's healthy shame right shame is a thing for a reason like we we're, we're supposed to it's natural to feel to blush, to like have certain reactions, but then it can turn pathological and neurotic and get into the points where, to where it turns into mm-hmm. disorders. 
what is shame for you and how does it come in? Why is it so important to have an understanding of our, of whether or not we could potentially be acting out like neurotic shame in our own lives? It makes me think of um, Dr. Stephen Hayes, Stephen C. Hayes. He he is, um, I believe, the creator of acceptance and commitment-based therapy. Mm. He has worked with Dr. Marshall Linehan, um, actually have I have so many books that I need to read right now. Being in grad school, I just have a stack of them and they just look at me every day. Um, <laughs> but this one I actually I actually read. It's called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. And there's one specific section um, that I can equate it to. This section is about pain. There's a difference between pain and suffering. Pain is when you put your hand on the burner and you're like, ow, that hurts. It's hot. Uh, suffering, however, is ruminating now about this pain like over 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 so to me that's what unhealthy shame so you've done this bad thing um it's past the point of learning and growing from it and you just keep on beating yourself up about it you keep on torturing yourself how i see it interacting with bpd is that these individuals believe that they are they don't have worth like that worthlessness that hopelessness so you know in addition to the emotion dysregulation and the distress tolerance skills that individuals might not have um it's kind of a lethal like combination you know like because then you can't get out of that until uh maybe somebody comes to like help like or you get help yourself um so it can be really um, sabotaging of your mental health to just continually being in this shame cycle because you're now just thinking about the bad thing as opposed to learning what you can do to be better in the future. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, that's something that's like super hard to deal with on your own. And if you are feeling that way. I would encourage people to get help if they are able to get help. Absolutely. I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense. How does shame play out in your eyes in family systems? It depends on like kind of which family systems. And I noticed with the um, kind of family systems, people might feel shame that they have done something wrong as a parent. Or something like that and that and that leads to avoidance and I had a, a DBT therapist in uh, Philadelphia um, I don't know if she's there anymore but she she was amazing Dr. Stephanie Matei and she told me that avoidance is the root of all evil and that resonated with me so the more you're kind of avoiding this shameful experience the more it's going to jump up like if I were to tell you don't think of a pink elephant Molly like whatever you can think of anything in the world, like hats, think of, you know, that like a painting, think of a sunset, but not a pink elephant. What are you gonna think? Pink fucking elephant. Yeah, just right there. Yep. It's like I was I heard another really good analogy and I said it on the podcast, maybe the last couple episodes, I can't remember, but mm-hmm. someone mentioned the like these these avoidance, these these shameful thoughts that we're having or emotions that we then cover up and don't want to really address 
It's like the idea of putting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a turkey sandwich in your car. And it's like, sure, it starts out as a sandwich, but then it's like you you know it's there and you're like, oh, I'll take care of it later. I'll take care of it later. And then all of a sudden you take it out and it's this moldy mess. And you're like, it started off as just a sandwich. It wasn't a big deal, right? It's like these shameful or like this menial thing that happens when we're a child that could be, you know, our parent walking in on us, touching ourselves or something, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and and being like, little good little boys or girls don't do that, right? If you – I've literally heard like friends, like, you know, I was raised Catholic. You know, I've heard some like serious Catholic guilt shit of like, you know, God is watching you. Like, don't do that, right? That's like the sandwich, right? And then all of a sudden as a child, it's like, okay, sex is bad. Sex is shameful. Now mommy thinks I'm bad. I'm not mommy's good little girl or boy anymore, And then we push those things away and it becomes this moldy sandwich and all of a sudden like healthy sexuality, which is like something we should express, becomes this toxic thing. Is that – does that resonate for you and your work? Yes, yes, yes. That that is a very descriptive way of putting it because it it does – like the more you avoid things, the more festers and that – the visceral feeling of – walking into my car and smelling a moldy sandwich makes me want to retch. Oh, and, that's, and I feel like that many times like 10 is how individuals feel mm-hmm. like when there's not a physical moldy sandwich, but it's just like this feeling inside of you. So it definitely resonates. With me. Yeah. I mean, imagine if, you know, what well, for me, I experienced some like, uh, early childhood sexual abuse myself. And unraveling that has been really difficult for me because it was kind of at the hands of a boy that was a couple years older than me. And it's taken me a long time to unpack that. And like, mm-hmm. and when I would think about that, you know, um, and I had some also early experiences with kind of like masturbation and sex being very shamed. And so, I have had a very complex relationship with my own sexuality where I almost like acted out this really promiscuous thing in in the background and it turned my own sexuality. I thought I was liberating myself, you know, like I'm like, Mm -hmm. but in reality, I was actually getting as far away from healthy intimacy as I possibly could. And then I was surrounded by you know, I found myself involved in sex work, like doing sugar baby stuff, like work and uh, working uh, poker, really expensive, like back alley poker rooms in LA. And all of a sudden you find yourself surrounded by a lot of men, by the way, who probably have their own emotional issues and sex shame issues. And it's just a bunch of people who are acting out all of these toxic rotten turkey sandwich emotions together. And then you wonder why. And I had to step out of it and just be like, oh my God, like, I went like completely celibate for a while and like stopped dating and I had to like detox myself and realize there's actually good men out there. There are Mm -hmm. good, amazing men out there. But I was so – I was creating this reality for myself. And as someone who has been a victim of sexual assault since, I can wholly say without being victim blaming that I put myself directly in a lot of those situations and it's been really hard to unravel for me. Do you find that that's a common theme for people? I do. Um, because, you know, we tend to, again, avoid maybe the thoughts of that trauma. And again, it's 
it's like a shaken up pop bottle. Um, you have like the lid on so tight, it's shaken up and anything in the environment can make it like explode. If it's too hot outside, if you put it in the freezer, it might explode all over there. Um, but the key is to kind of like let little bits of pressure off. Um, it, the more things are kind of like dissociated, this is kind of another piece of my research that I do. The more uh, things are kind of dissociated, um, you, you're not able to learn from it because it's not accessed by your memory. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I love how you said that, you know, you're not victim blaming. You just recognize, like, I'm living this out, which actually creates a lot of power for you and autonomy because you are able to now be in the driver's seat of your life. Yes. Um, because then you can select and it still is probably an uncomfortable feeling at first, like where to go from there. It might be an overwhelming choice and it's, you don't have to make the choice right away. I like how you uh, took that time to just like sit with um, what you were feeling, what you're doing and learn from that mm -hmm. as opposed to just uh, shamefully judging yourself. You found yourself in those situations because of, you know, I had a really good friend say, you know, it's like you're on your front lawn and this dump truck full of manure shows up, dumps it on your front lawn. And that's what trauma could. Yes. Now, you didn't ask for this. Um, now you can sit in the gigantic pile of manure or you can grab a shovel and you can start digging. Yes, because right? regardless so, whether or not it's there, you have to deal with it. That is such a good – I saw one of those cheesy Instagram illustrations the other day and it was similar to that where it was like a figure of a, a little girl and her mother and her mother is like puts her on top of this big pile of luggage and the mom goes – here you go. This is all yours now. And it says like trauma, trauma, trauma on all the series. <laughs> yeah. yep. And um, I feel like, man, everyone, that's trauma. This is trauma. I'm traumatized. You're traumatizing me. I feel like, again, it's so important for us to have a deeply nuanced understanding of these topics, which is, again, why I started a podcast. Instagram is there just to funnel people to my podcast because I say over and over again, Instagram, TikTok, these are not places to learn about your mental health friends. Like this is just not where you do it because it, it I I cannot. I, I mean, if you've seen some of my slides, I write so much on my Instagram slides <laughs> because it's I can't just do a do this, do that. People like get so many followers or posting these memes where it's like wanted to cut myself today and like 10,000 BPD people like it. It's like, that's the easy way. Right. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to click, do this clickbait thing. This is a nuanced topic that requires us to have really a deep understanding of ourselves first. And my question yeah. for you is to what impact do you, are you seeing on the clinical side of mental health Instagram, mental health TikTok? It can be kind of dangerous. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit biased because now, um, the, oh my goodness, how long have I even been doing this? I wish my husband was here. Uh, it, <laughs> say way, way too, way too long. Uh, <laughs> I mean, oh God, I want to say since like high school, I've been uh, kind of doing this. It was like a better part of twenty years in the making, and you wow. cannot, you cannot 
like pigeonhole like 20 years of training down to a beam. <laughs> it's oh, just not thank possible. you. It's you, you just can't. And even with people that haven't been through like counseling, even people that have BPD, it's not like you can uh, equate your entire existence to like one meme or something like that that'll solve your problem. Unfortunately, um, you know, solutions take time, work, effort, and you know, you won't want to do it every single day. You won't yes. want to get up. And it's not just about being seen. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like every, a lot of, I'm I'm vastly making generalizations, but I feel like people are drawn to meme accounts that don't actually really want to change. They just want to be told it's okay to be how you are now. And that to me is very problematic. It's, it's like, it's dangerous because it's validating and reinforcing um, it doesn't have the other pieces. I mean, it, it, it's good um, if you can kind of have the like mindfulness that like this is good and yes. need other pieces. It's yes. always that and piece. Validation um, is not the end of the road. Do you know what I'm saying? I quite often see yeah. where, look at the children. If we were showing these memes to kids that were three or four, then great. Like they just need validation. And then it's the parent's mm-hmm. job to put in the structures. Not that I would ever think this went awry because kids should not be looking at those memes. But my, <laughs> the second part of this is like, mm-hmm. I feel like the va- validation is really what like the quintessential IG self-diagnosed borderline thinks that all they need is I need my experience validated. And I'm taking that like nanny, nanny, boo-boo tone because it really comes across <sighs> that way. And for someone and people that I know who takes their recovery so incredibly seriously, I am reading so much. I have to stop myself midway through conversations with my partner multiple times a day where I snapped at him this morning. And then I went, you know, I thought about what I just said and I was coming from a place of judgment and I'm, I'm really sorry for talking to you like that. Right. Mm -hmm. It is little amendments. It's making sure I get up and go on my 30 minute walk, making sure that I'm feeding my body, reading recovery takes so much work. And so Mm -hmm. to just think that, okay, I have BPD and I just want you to validate my experience it's not that people's fault because I really just think they don't know, but mm-hmm. what is your reaction to that? Like, yes, people need validation. How can we, but then again, it's this, again, it's a bunch of adults on Instagram usually being like, validate me. And then there's a Jordan Peterson quote. And again, however mm-hmm. anyone feels about Jordan Peterson, I love his work. And I think that I'm sure that there are things that I disagree with him on and agree with him on. But he said something about people with borderline personality disorder. He said, when you see a child throwing a tantrum, it's like it's a child throwing a tantrum. But with someone with BPD, when you see an adult with BPD throwing a tantrum, it's bloody terrifying is what he says. So for me, when I look at mental health Instagram and TikTok, I kind of just see a bunch of adult borderlines throwing tantrums. And it turns me off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's again, I always take like the patience and kindness with yourself kind of route. Um, because when you start to notice, um, like your emotions shifting, I always try and ask myself why, even if like from, if you're looking at an account and you notice like it's a temporary relief, Mm. you're like, Oh, I feel validated. I feel seen. And that feels positive. 
kind of ask yourself why, what about that? Because then you can use these memes as a, a tool of reflection. Um, I know a lot of people cannot afford like therapists and stuff like that. And that could probably be part of it because, you know, again, yeah. you know, uh, the economy nowadays is quite the hit. So um, it could be because people can't afford that kind of help. Um, I'm I'm of the old school, like grab a book. I almost feel like too distracted, like reading it on like a, a, a screen that is flashing at 60 hertz that, you know, it's not even perception for my mm-hmm. eyes. And there's sensory issues there too, which could be contributing to any number of problems. Um, but yeah, it's that patience and kindness like with yourself and learning. Like yeah. uh, journaling is a great way of processing as well. So if you're, if you're hashtag obsessed with these like uh, meme accounts, like ask yourself why and what about these memes is helping you and how you can get more of it in not just a meme way. Mm-hmm. You're, part of recovery is like doing doing a lot of things, not just going to therapy. Like you said, it's like nourishing my body, nourishing my brain. It's like the, the basic senses of eating and sleeping and you know, being in a healthy, safe relationship, like mm-hmm. think of Maslow's hierarchy of, you know, if those lower needs are not met, how are you going to meet the higher? And in DBT, that's the same thing. It's like, if your suicidality is not under control, you can't even get to learning the skills. Yep. So take you have to me- build those, like fill the lower buckets first, you know, before you can get to the, to the, uh, digesting Marshall Linehan's book, for example, right? Oh like, it's a which, dense read. <laughs> which was real, I got it on Audible actually. And so that was a really, I love Audible. Like I, but I also can't part from my actual books too. So it's, I'm usually doing two books at a time where like one that I'm reading, like that I can like read in bed and then one that I can like listen to when I'm walking and doing my workout and stuff. Um, yeah. But books have, well, I've been a reader my whole life, like since I was very, very young, like a voracious reader. My partner, conversely has like does not like reading it's like he'll read like a electronic manual before he'll read a book you know it's just different strokes for different folks but it works for me and I also just think for people who don't have access to therapy a lot of people don't are there any books that you recommend for people with personality disorders and we can get nerdy here like it can be whatever (laughs) I'm what do you recommend um it depends on where the person is in terms of like their reading and whatnot. Uh, one that I always love, it's that uh, even C. Hayes, uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, yeah. um, because it it kind of teaches those mindfulness skills. And it's, it's not a huge read. It's not super expensive. It's just there. I know that there is a lot of uh, DBT self-help books out there. I just love... Um, the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for borderline by um, Marsha Lanningham. I think okay. that was a life that was a life changing book for me. Um, I like the skills, the company's skills manuals as well, but like the theoretical book, um, talk about feeling seen. I'm like, oh my god, like that is what I've seen with like a lot of these individuals. This is how it's happening. Like I'm very, I'm very nerdy, so in in my school, I also do a lot of statistics. So I like, I love math. 
<laughs> so like the density of that book and just like how thorough it is in describing stuff like I would recommend that to anybody academic and not I, I love that one and just like if anybody's going to read it and it, they find it particularly difficult just like like an elephant the only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time just just take it slow and yes. like if, if and like look to like uh, message boards and stuff like that and research things on the internet too like to look stuff up uh if you don't read it all if you don't read it fast i did not read it fast either just take your time with it i love it it's it's amazing. probably the best way to go through those things too like it's it's just like you would never cram they say not to cram for a test like the night before because a never. lot of it will just go out of your mind and that's how i've approached like i read the body keeps the score you know by bessel van der kolk and that's a thick one too and also it's like a lot of research and i found that digesting it in little pieces was super helpful for me. Um, and yep. I don't, and I think a lot of people do think that like, I need to get through this whole book and it's like, you don't, you can just totally just like have little mm-hmm. moments where it's like little classes for yourself. You, and I, that's what I've done. Yep. I've created like school for myself in my own recovery. Fantastic. And I feel like everyone can do that. Every single person we have yep. just as we talk about all these horrific outcomes from like TikTok and Instagram. (laughs) We also, it's dialectics, right? There's good, not everything is all good and bad. There's also like, you can watch incredible amounts of stuff on YouTube, um, on like the NEA BPD site. There's like a podcast that one of the DBT therapists did that I uncovered the other day. And I was like, it's literally like 40 hours of this guy talking and running DBT groups all for free. And I'm just going- and it's in the archives. Clearly, they don't have like a marketing expert. And I'm like, damn, they should be promoting this more. But I found yeah. it. And I'll, I'll link that in the show notes too. But what I'm trying to say is if you want to, there is, we live in an age where there's so many resources at our fingertips. And if you are committed enough, and also, like you said, in a functional space, because some of us are suffering with BPD and we cannot get out of bed. I've been there too. So start where you are. But if you're at like master class level recovery and you don't have access to therapy and you're stable, there's so much you can do. Set yourself up a damn BPD recovery school. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's what I've done, you know, and and most of it for free, you know, like, and without, without the exception of like books that I've purchased and whatnot, but it's nothing Mm -hmm. like textbooks at school. Like, you know, those were like hundreds of dollars. I'm talking about the books that you buy and you're like, girl, I know. Um, (laughs) Let's finish off with the question that I'd like to ask you. If you have any ending advice A, for people with BPD who are struggling and maybe a few things that they can do or just final thoughts and then also final thoughts for parents, partners um, of people supporting people with BPD. There's hope. There is hope. There is light at the end of that tunnel and uh, you are stronger than you give yourself credit. You probably have been through hell and back. If you're listening, you're still here. You can do it. There are people like me, like Molly, that are here rooting for you. Reach out, make mistakes, learn from them, grow. You can do it. It might not feel like that every single day, but ride those waves of emotion. They can't stay there forever. Everything is permanent. What about for the partners and family members of those with BPD? Self-care and boundaries. 
you need to be mindful of yourself and what you need and set realistic boundaries and consequences that you can enforce. They don't have to be overly punitive. They just have to protect yourself and your mental health. Because like I said before, you can't help anybody if you yourself are also suffering. So Mm -hmm. if you find yourself burnt out, you also should be seeking help in talking about this because how are you going to get through this without the skills? Because BPD is complex. There are good days and there are bad days. You aren't weak. And this goes for um, both people. You aren't weak for looking for help. We are in a very social society. And I know that being online is very isolating. You don't have to carry this weight alone. Uh, there are people that are here to support you and make use of them if you're able to. Beautiful. So in in closing, what's next in the world of Jen? What are you working on now? What's what's next? <laughs> I'm working on writing up my dissertation. So I should be publishing things right now. Um, I'm waiting for, so I have three studies. Uh, part of my Vanier application was that I wanted to um, test the relationships between uh, adversity, attachment, and um, personality outcomes. And so I've got to write all that stuff up in three separate studies. My second study is exploring mindfulness uh, in that. So I have data for that. And then my third study is currently running. It's online. It's with um, students. So trying to look for all that same stuff. So writing, writing, writing. All day, every day. I speak for everyone when that's listening. When I say thank you for all the work that you do, it is just so important. I know that so many people have been burned by one or two experiences of very real stigma in the mental health Mm. field, right? Because it exists. Or what I want to impart upon the listeners is that there are so many mental health professionals out there that get it that want to get it, that are trying their best, that also are fighting against the stigma. And I want them to be exposed to those people because I think that there are some people with cluster B personality disorders amongst others that just are scared to even go try because they've been told there's so much stigma. Stuff's changing, isn't it? Like it's it's changing. The stigma is dissipating slowly but surely. Um, there are people out there that can help you. But again, you have to take yeah. the initiative to interview them, make sure and do the do the work on your side. But thank you, Jen, so, so much for being a guest. How can my audience support you? Pay attention to Brock University, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. have a huge social media presence just because I worked in uh, prisons and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, uh, you can do like kind of uh, – searches for like some of my work uh mm-hmm. if there's going to be publications i would like to maybe do something in the future that is more uh online and if i do um then you'll be able to find it with my first and last name i'm looking forward to reading this stuff when it's published oh i'm happy to share anytime and i would definitely come back on this show well thank you so much jen <laughs> All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. 
And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media, and keep up with all the new updates, you can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode, so don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon book list recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.